welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. I've had a year or so off of making Fair Folk. You may have noticed if you have been a subscriber for a while. And thank you for sticking around. I just can imagine how strange it must be to have a new Fair Folk podcast episode pop up on your feed after about a year. I'm extremely excited to be back. And now I actually, when I started making this episode, I had intended to do something else entirely. I was making an episode for another podcast that I've been making for the last seven months or so called the Pagan Monastery Podcast. I just found that I kept making (laughs) this episode instead, and ultimately that it belonged on the Fair Folk Podcast. So here it is. I want to announce right off the bat that if you haven't heard my new podcast, the Pagan Monastery Podcast, I definitely suggest it, especially if you've missed hearing from me for this time. There's a whole lot of content there already, and I will link the project in the show notes. It is an initiative that I've begun with a small group of people to start a pagan monastery in Europe because we need a place to gather and keep sacred feasts and have retreats and learn together and teach. There needs to be a gathering place for pagans. So I want us to start one. (laughs) So if you want to hear more eloquent thoughts about that, definitely check out the other podcast. And I'm going to announce here just briefly something that I'll be announcing there as well in a matter of days. And that's the fact that I've set up an online community space for the Pagan Monastery Project because hundreds of people have expressed interest in helping out in one way or another. And I want to slowly open an online place where we can start a community around this effort and ultimately work together to fundraise to purchase a heritage property for gathering. But I understand that it's wise to do these things in stages. So right now there's a group of about four people I've been meeting with and discussing plans. And the next step this week is I would like to open up about 10 more places for very committed people who wish to start with me in building the online space that will house the community It exists, it's built, in that there's a Geneva home, that is a website similar to Discord, but a little more enabled for future tech and a little spacier, roomier, I find it. That place exists already, but I understand that if I invite (laughs) a couple thousand people into a community suddenly without any pre-planning and without any people who have already committed to, to having a central role, that I might have utter chaos on my hands. So I want to invite a particular set of people who feel that they have skills that would help us to get started. People who are really committed to spending time unpaid (laughs) in the initial moments of this project to get it rolling. And what your skill set may be will definitely vary. And I'd like to have a varied set of skills in the group. But if this sounds exciting to you and you feel like I might be speaking to you, I highly encourage you to go to the link in the show notes where I have placed a call for this core group, the circle. You might call it the inner circle, but (laughs) ultimately I want to expand the circle much, much wider. And I've listed specifically in that call which skills might be 
needed that I anticipate we'll need. And I also have included the option that you may have a skill that I have not written down or I haven't thought of that you know will be essential to the project. At this moment, I'm just going to invite in a limited number of people. And then in a few weeks, when we're ready, we'll make a broader call to the whole community who can come and hang out and meet each other on much more of an equal playing field than traditional social media has set up. I want us to be able to gather together in real community, not community that just has one mouthpiece and makes pronouncements from some sort of high hill, the way that these social media accounts set things up. I want us all to actually be able to share and exchange and meet one another. And this is something I've been thinking about for a really long time with regards to fair folk and the community around my work. I just haven't had the right container until now. It's much more epic than I ever would have imagined what that container was going to be, a pagan monastery project. But there you go. Sometimes when we don't know why we don't want to do something yet, it's because something much bigger is waiting in the wings than we'd ever imagined or thought. A little personal update. My partner and I have moved from Iceland, where we were living all last year, back to Canada, back to my hometown in the north of British Columbia. And we're settling in here and I have a studio again and I have an office and we're planning to be here for a year or two just to get grounded again after living abroad. It can be pretty taxing. But as I've landed, I immediately found that I wanted to start making folklore podcasts again and pagan material for people to work with and share them. This almanac concept was tugging at my skirts since the summertime. I was walking around in Ontario near my partner's parents' house. And I just started thinking, man, I want to start making the almanacs again. But we were moving over the course of the whole summer. And it just wasn't time until we landed here. And now it is time. This episode, if I haven't mentioned, and maybe I haven't, so I got a little ahead of myself there, is an almanac episode of the podcast for the month of October. 2022. I previously made a year and a half of Almanac episodes of the podcast and shared them just on my Patreon. And once in a while, I would share them publicly. And I would make larger episodes for major holidays sometimes and share them. But I've heard from a lot of people that these Almanac episodes are some of the most beloved. And I can see that in the listening patterns of the podcast. And I also love making them. And I also find it a cool way to integrate my interest in, in calendar custom, as we call these regional folkloric traditions related to time, and personal development, which is a real passion of mine and is really what has enabled any of the work that I do that's so unconventional and often public and experimental to happen. I'm really big on personal development, which is also kind of a weird way to, to phrase it, especially when you're thinking about personal development in terms of going back to ancient traditions. But there we are. There's a paradox in that. And I think that it is an incredibly useful package. It's something that I would desire myself if I were out there looking for podcasts. I listen to a lot of astrology podcasts for this reason. I love some guidance on what's going to come in the next month and some context to place my experience in and some encouragement for how I can use that atmosphere, that information. So I want to offer that to you in these episodes, and I want to offer them publicly. I don't know 
how long I'll make Elmanac podcast episodes again. This may be the only one, but somehow I doubt it. I have an intention to continue making them, but that also just depends on life and other things. But I am definitely, definitely excited about this one. And it seems so cool and appropriate to start an Elmanac podcast in October, because October is this extremely mystical, pagan, folklore-rich time. And it's not our imagination if we, if we think that October is especially magical and we love Halloween. It's not an anomaly. There is something very, very old about the onset of winter and the atmosphere of this time that appeals to everybody who has some sense beyond their own narrow worldview. Anyone who's interested in the mysterious or the otherworldly, the religious or the magical, this is a call that has originated in the dawn of the seasons in the northern or southern hemispheres. It's a, an interest that starts with the start of time itself and with our awareness of death and death's role in the environment around us. My approach in these Almanac episodes is to look at major traditional holidays and rural seasonal traditions from Europe and consider them in their relationship to the cycles of the earth and the human connection to what we call nature. That's other animals, plants, temperatures, celestial bodies like the sun and moon, and supernatural creatures and gods. We may often notice how our lives are affected by seasons, but our forebears knew that life is quite literally seasonal. That is, we are shaped by the seasons. Our life happens in seasons. Seasons are inextricable from our experience of this planet. And re-immersing in the calendar customs of days gone by helps us to attune ourselves more graciously with the seasons that surround, direct, and in some ways inhabit us. I believe the measurement of time is an essential component of spiritual belief. To illustrate, I'll read a little passage from the start of Volospau, the seeress's prophecy from Norse mythology that describes the beginning and the end of the world. This passage describes how when the earth was still mostly formless, the gods structured time itself. I remember giants born early in time. Those nurtured me long ago, says the CRS. I remember nine worlds. I remember nine giant women, the mighty measuring tree below the earth. Early in time, Emir, the giant, made his settlement. There was no sand, nor sea, nor cool waves. Earth was nowhere, nor the sky above, a void of yawning chaos. Grass was there, nowhere. Before the sons of Burr brought up the land surface, those who shaped glorious Midgard, the sun shone from the south on the stone hall, then the ground was grown over with the green leek. From the south, sun, companion of the moon, threw her right hand round the sky's edge. Sun did not know where she had her hall, the stars did not know where they had their stations, the moon did not know what might he had. Then all the powers went to the thrones of fate, the sacrosanct gods, and considered this. Tonight and her children they gave names. Morning they named, and midday, afternoon and evening, to reckon up in years. 
festivals that mark time are sacred in themselves because they hearken back to this idea that time's structure is divine, is created by an intentional choice, by protective and supportive beings that are more powerful than human beings. You'll notice I'm especially interested in sharing about pagan ritual, magic, and sacred things, but I also share traditional and sometimes new folk songs relating to the themes of the season. If you enjoy anything you hear on the podcast, please, please visit the show notes, where wherever possible I'll link the artist page where you can go and purchase their music from them. Since although I know musicians appreciate streaming revenue on places like Spotify, it is much more beneficial to them if you purchase their music from their webpage or Bandcamp directly. Music is one of the most mysterious and powerful communicators of emotional and physical sensation, and when it's done with sincerity and skill, it's pure fuel for the imagination. What's conveyed in a song, especially an old one, whose lyrics we maybe don't even understand any longer, goes far beyond what any one person can just say with words. People have often told me that hearing traditional songs on this podcast has made them feel part of a larger community of beings and people, and I hope it feels that way for you too. These Almanac episodes cover a broad swath of European seasonal lore, especially Nordic and Germanic countries and the British Isles, and because historical paganism is so remote and so little information remains, sometimes I might speak in terms of really broad cultural groups or linguistic groups like Germanic or Celtic or Gaelic or Slavic. My intention with the podcast and with a lot of my work is to be really experimental in drawing together threads from related traditions to get a thematic or emotional flavor around the season or the period of time or festival, and offer the practice as a loose model for reviving and engaging with nourishing pagan and folklore culture. I also include suggestions, just like I said earlier, about how you might like to include similar practices in your own life in keeping with the historical flavor of the month. And I don't intend for any of this to be perfect or objective, I know that people can sometimes be sensitive about how you're using traditional culture. I just want to say that that is part of my intention. So don't be surprised if I combine or speculate about how things might have been related at different times in history or how you can relate them yourself. I do my best to get my facts accurate, but I also like to play fast and loose with how I'm going to use them. What I share here is shared with the hopes that it inspires you to connect in empowering and positive ways with yourself and the diversity of folk cultures from Europe and this incredible planet and its cycles. I want you to feel more at home in your body, on the planet, and wherever you are. And I hope you'll be excited by the magic and mystery available in spaces between our ordinary knowing and the other world that's always just barely out of eyesight. So here we are in October, and I can't fail to mention that October is a super special, magical time that we probably all feel, especially the witchy ones among us. The deciduous tree leaves are changing color, and they're falling from the trees with an uncanny rustling sound. You might pull out your sweaters from storage, you might get cozy with good company, and big, hearty communal meals. People start talking about ghosts and goblins and death. And you'll see kids going door to door dressed in weird clothing and begging strangers for treats. At least in North America, this is a really common practice. And I've noticed that in Europe, it's starting to catch on as well in places where it isn't necessarily traditional. 
I really notice at this time of year that the air smells different. It's cooler. It's peppered with leaf rot and wood smoke, sometimes even a hint of the first snowfall. And obviously pumpkin spice, which is cool because it's a a traditional warming spice that echoes the Middle Ages when these exotic spices were imported specifically to Europe for festivals like Christmas, some of the most important festivals of the year. October is really importantly marking a period of time. The beginning of October is the end of the harvest. It's when people are finishing up with the grain harvest and they start harvesting root vegetables and things that could survive a frost. It's also a time when people are processing <laughs> the things that have been harvested. It's, it's an incredibly intense work period. And it spans from this harvest period with all of the gathering, cutting, drying, grinding, salting, baking, brewing work that needs to be going on to secure the food, to keep it for winter so that it lasts. From that period to the mark of the beginning of winter, where most of those activities are put to the side, the food has been stored, and we're moving into the very dark, very cold period. And that is marked specifically by holidays such as Halloween and winter nights, which I'll mention as well from Scandinavian tradition. These are both originally pagan holidays. Any period of intense work related to food sources that keep people alive (laughs) tend to be some of the most intense ritual periods of the year, or at least it seems natural that these peaks of activity would also be peaks of time when you would ask for help and you'd be considering the security of your community and reaching out to supernatural forces to help you in securing your well-being for the wintertime, preparing yourself physically and spiritually for the cold weather and darkness and literal danger to come in the following months. Therefore, the most intensive ritual times of the year in European folklore are autumn, winter, and spring. And a lot of these rituals are focused on plant fertility and harvest and predicting the harvest and planning for the harvest. Because in the summer, food is readily available, the animals are out to pasture, and there actually isn't a whole lot to do. So you'll notice that there's a lot less holidays in the classical sense in the summertime. In this episode, I'll talk about the end of year harvest practices briefly. We're moving out of that period now and into the sort of spookier, more spiritual aspects of October. I'll talk about the start of winter in Germanic and Celtic tradition and Gaelic. I'll talk a little bit about saints relating to October, saints days that were marked in October in Europe in general, and a couple of examples that I find particularly interesting relating to winter garb and poverty. And of course, I'll finish by talking about Halloween and specifically the role that fire plays in Samhain and Halloween festivities around the world, but also in Ireland and Scotland particularly. And then I'll share how I would suggest that you use some of these examples to inspire your approach to the month of October, both ritually and personally. And I'll share songs relevant to these topics in order to help you feel them in your spirit, in your body, and get a real juicy sense of how other people have felt this time of year and the themes in it. In pagan Scandinavia, 
the full moon of October or of the 10th month, so that would be the first full moon after the new moon of the equinox, which this year falls on October 9th specifically, at least in Pacific time. It's 1.54 p.m., I think. This full moon would be called Winter Nights, and it was an ancient festival that marked the beginning of winter, because in Norse paganism, there were only two seasons of the year, the dark season and the bright season, the season where the nights were longer than the days, and the season where the days are longer than the nights. And the Winter Nights Festival was very important, one of the most important of the year. It was celebrated over three nights, which is why it was called the Winter Nights and not the Winter Night. And it's called the Winter Nights because, again, as I said, it signals the beginning of winter. We know that historically, the Deesir, figures called the Deesir, were sacrificed to at the beginning of winter. Terry Gunnell, researcher, an expert on Norse paganism, who I've had on the podcast a few times now, has a theory that I'm really behind that the Deesir are sacrificed to at the beginning and end of winter because winter is a period that is populated by feminine deities or figures who are both often protective but also dangerous at the same time. And I will talk more about these winter goddesses or winter feminine figures in future episodes. But for now, I just want to say that the Deesir were sacrificed to on winter nights, and they were connected with the dead and with the death. Sometimes they were seen to be goddesses, other times they were more like Valkyries or Fetches, like personal protective spirits or protective spirits of a family. It's not totally clear what they are because, you know, time and location vary and beliefs adjust and change and are just slippery things. But we know that the Deesir are feminine. We know that they are supernatural, if not divine, and that they are related to death, fertility, and sometimes personal protection. A lot of place names in Scandinavia testify to their importance in the culture there historically. Winter Nights is also connected with Freyr sometimes, the god. It has been suggested that there's some sort of erotic exchange between the Deesir and Freyr at this time. Multiple times in Old Norse literature, specifically the sagas, it's mentioned that there are three major bloats, that is three major sacrificial feasts or celebrations in the year. That would be autumn, midwinter, and spring. The ones that happen at the start of the year, in winter, are described in a couple of places as til aurs og fridar, which would be to the year and peace, or for year and peace. The word fridar can mean peace and harmony in society, but it also can have some erotic implications. I think really interesting about this, too, is the fact that aur just means year in Old Norse and, and also modern Icelandic, but it can mean the year's crop or the yield or the harvest. There's something really interesting, though, so they say like for the year and peace, there's this sense that you're also bringing the year into being, that by hosting these rituals, you are continuing time and life itself. You are restarting the year. You're restarting time. You're giving an offering to the gods 
specifically to the Dísir and maybe sometimes to the Elvar or Freyr, to keep time going, <laughs> to have a year. And I think that this is something we can really identify with in this era of time where there is so much discussion about the idea of the world ending or time stopping. Have you thought about, if you're feeling fears of the apocalypse, reaching out to the gods and asking them at this time to continue life at all? Because that's what's at stake at the beginning of winter. A lot of people who are impoverished, who have no secure shelter or fuel or food, are at risk of dying every winter, both historically and today. And in Europe, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, we have, in some places, very intense winters indeed. This is also the time in Gaelic tradition of Samhain, which I'm not sure what the original time of Samhain was, but we know that October 31st is the eve of Samhain, so that would be the 1st of November that it's actually held, but we're talking about it in October because this is when all of the preparations happen and I feel like those feasts make sense to cluster together. The Halloween, Samhain, All Saints Day, All Souls Day, which is interestingly also a three-day festival, which is traditional in pagan times in more than one culture. Samhain is a festival that celebrates just like winter nights, the end of the harvest, and it's when people would bring their cows down from the pasture and either keep them in the fold or prepare them for slaughter, preserving the meat to keep for winter. This time also possibly marked the beginning of winter in the Celtic calendar. There is the same system of a two-part year of the winter and summer, and so this occasion, Samhain, marks the start of the winter season. You may have heard over and over again, though it's true, that the veil is thin at this time of year, especially over Halloween and that period of celebration and ritual. In Ireland, the early literature says that the burial mounds that you see dotting the whole countryside were open on All Hallows' Eve, so creatures and spirits from the other world, notably the fairies, might travel up and out on that night and travel the countryside, sometimes in great threatening bands. I find the fact that this veil-thinning image happens at this time of year really interesting because it tends to exist in calendars that have these two seasons, winter and summer, as if the year could be folded in half like a piece of paper or parchment and that the edges between the two halves of the year thin, and there's, there's something that bleeds out between the two worlds itself. One of my favorite recordings of a ballad is from the borders, the area between Scotland and England, and it's called Tem Lynn. It's recorded by Anais Mitchell and Jefferson Hamer on their Child Ballads album. And it tells the story of a young woman named Janet and a fellow she meets named Tamlin, who is a lot more than he initially seems. She meets him when she's at Carter Hall picking roses. In some dubious circumstances, she has sex with him. And later, she discovers that she's pregnant. So she comes back 
to Carter Haw to collect some herbs that would induce an abortion, which the song calls the poison rose. Tamlin shows up and asks her why she's picking these herbs, and she says that she would rather marry a mortal man than a wild shade, which is what she knows he is, or calls him. He says that he actually is or used to be a mortal man, but he was kidnapped by the fairy queen one day when he fell off of his horse. Janet is actually interested in being with Tamlin, so he explains to her how she might be able to rescue him back from the fairy queen's clutches. And on Halloween, the fairy queen is going to ride with her fairy cavalcade, and they are going to take him to the devil to offer him as a tithe to hell. But she can save him if she pulls him down from his horse as he rides past. He tells her that she's going to have to hold on to him as he transforms into various beasts, which she does, and he transforms into a human naked man again, much to the fairy queen's chagrin, who expresses that she wishes she had turned him into a tree instead. What's really cool about this song specifically is the fact that it resembles the wild hunt that appears all over Germanic regions of the world in the wintertime, which is often led by a sinister feminine figure, one of these wintertime goddesses that I mentioned earlier. There's so many different versions of this story, but it's cool that Halloween is the moment where this story starts out of a crew of malevolent figures, possibly flying, possibly riding horses across the landscape, and plucking people from their homes and generally threatening them. So here is Tamlin by Anais Mitchell and Jefferson Hamer.
There's four and twenty ladies fair sewing at the silk And Janet goes among them all Her face is pale as milk And four and twenty gentlemen playing at the chess And Janet goes among them all As green as any glass And up and spoke her father He spoke in meek and mild Oh, alas, my daughter Child, and is it to a man of might or to a man of means? Or who among my gentlemen shall give the baby's name? Oh, father, if I go with child, this much to you I tell there's none among your gentlemen that I would treat so well. And father, if I go with child, I must bear the blame. There's none among your gentlemen Shall give the babe his name She's let the seam fall at her heel The needle to her toe She has gone to Carter Hall As fast as she can go She is down among the weeds Down among the thorn And then appeared Tamlin again Since the lady pulled no more What makes you pull the poison rose What makes you break the tree What makes you harm the little babe That I have got with thee Oh, I will pull the rose, Tamlin I will break the tree But I'll not bear the little babe That you have got with me If she were to a gentleman Not a wild shade I'd rock him all the winter's night And all the summer's day Then take me back into your arms If you, my love, would win Hold me tight and fear me not I'll be a gentleman But first I'll change all in your arms Into a wild wolf But hold me tight and fear me not I am your own true love And I'll change all in your arms Into a wild bear But hold me tight and fear me not I am your husband too And I'll change all in your arms Into a lion bold But hold me tight and fear me not And you will love your child At first he changed all in her arms Into a wild wolf She held him tight and feared him not He was her own true love And then he changed all in her arms Into a wild bear She held him tight and feared him not He was her husband Changed all in her arms into a lion bull. She held him tight and feared him not, the father of her child. And then he changed all in her arms into a naked man. She's wrapped him in her coat so warm, and she has brought him home. Thank you.
because the veil was considered thin at this time of year, at the beginning of winter, all over Europe, there is a huge proliferation of divination at this time. Divination is popular on many different holidays around the year, but I would say that the winter time and the peak ritual times of the winter are the most common to hear about divination practices. Some of my favorites involve apples around Halloween because this is when apples are ripened in plentiful supply. People will, as you know, still bob for apples. Some people would peel an apple while walking three times around a grave mound or around the church graveyard and throw the apple peelings behind them and hope that the peelings will show them the initial of their future partner. There are lots of different foods that people will make around this time of year all over the British Isles, and I'm sure beyond, where different symbolic objects are baked into a cake or mixed into a gruel of some kind, a thimble symbolizing being single, a coin symbolizing wealth, and similar such objects. I think that would be a really fun activity to do with your kids if you want. Maybe don't include any of the symbols for you're going to die this year, which was definitely a common thing, especially in I've seen a lot of Irish folklore around that. But I'd encourage you to look it up. There's a lot of examples online and everywhere of how you might do something like this, like a special cake or a porridge. You can look at ducas.ie, D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E on the National Folklore Collection website for Ireland. They have a lot of really cool examples from this too. If you look up Halloween or divination or apples, etc. So this is the beginning of a whole season in Northern Europe that features guising traditions, that is people dressing up in disguise or costumes and processing around the town, often from door to door, often singing. And this has been spoken about on this podcast at great length with Terry Gunnell, who I mentioned earlier, in an episode called Our Supernatural Landlords. And I'll link that in the show notes. It is really wonderful to listen to again at this time of year because he has such great examples from Scandinavia and Scotland. There is a really cool parallel between the kinds of threatening, mysterious, otherworldly figures who populate the wintertime folklore of Europe and the way that people engage with them, both by imitating them, dressing up as monsters, creatures, hobby horses, etc., but also honor them, or, or you could say placate them, which I less an interest of mine than, than honoring. But there's this mutuality where you, they are both embodying these otherworldly creatures or the dead, and are also protecting themselves from them by disguising themselves and participate in giving and receiving of food and drink on their behalf. One practice related to this whole body of guising tradition that has left some really catchy songs behind that have become connected with Christmas, but originally belong to this Halloween season, in England at least, are souling songs. This practice of souling, which is going door to door, singing and begging for soul cakes or other food and drink items that you would call soul cakes, is done in several areas of England. On All Souls Night or All Saints Night, adults and children would go door to door begging. And they sing a song blessing the masters of the house, asking for handouts, letting people know that they are in need by describing the raggedness of their clothing or the thinness of their shoes, 
Sometimes, as I said, they'd have a hobby horse or some other costumed figure with them, depending on the location, and they might blacken their faces to disguise their identity. Soul cakes themselves, I am not so clear on what they're like. I bet they vary a lot, but they tended to be circular, probably like a hot cross bun. By the time this custom was recorded in the 19th century, people were begging for just any old thing. Similar to wassailing, similar to trick-or-treating, there's a whole massive, diverse body of these guising traditions or mumming traditions all over Europe and also in the east coast of Canada, that if you're interested in this performative and processional ritualistic practice, I heavily recommend you look up. I especially love that there is a sense that this practice honors the dead because it is at this All Souls Night or All Saints Night or All Hallows or Samhain when the dead are especially present. People are begging and asking explicitly in, in many of these songs for soul cakes for the dead. One line from the Cheshire Souling song, which I will share here by the Cantorian Kinrig Singers, which is a Welsh name that I am sure I mispronounced, makes reference to giving a cake for Peter and two for Paul and three for him who made us all, which is a reference to the Christian God, but keeps the sense of you're offering the cakes to a divinity and to the dead. And Peter and Paul are two of the apostles of Jesus. So you can imagine how this might be a Christianization of an earlier version of the song, as Christian holidays have very explicitly taken over the pagan holidays of the winter in Europe. And this is very well documented that All Saints Day and All Souls Day, November 1st and 2nd, were explicit attempts by the church to redirect people's energy from focusing on supernatural entities and creatures and the fairies and the elves and the puka, <laughs> etc., toward the souls of the dead in purgatory and the dead who Catholics venerated as saints, because people had really rich traditions of honoring their own dead at this time as well. And this, this was a very effective way where Obviously, we've seen not entirely effective way, but a very intentional and widespread attempt by the church to corral the passion for celebrating the dead at this time of year into the centralized purposes of the church. This is the Cheshire Soling Song by the Cantorian Kinrig Singers. A soul, a soul, a soul cake, please, good Mrs. A soul cake, an apple, pear, plum, or a cherry, any good thing to make us all merry, one for Peter, two for Paul, three for him who made us all. God bless the master of this house, the Mr. S. O. So, and all the little children that round your table grow, like wise you men and maidens, your candle on your store, and all that dwells within your gates, we wish you ten times more. A soul, a soul, a soul. Come to the cellar and see what you can find. The barrels we not empty, we hope you will look kind. We hope you will look kind when your ramble's ends the beer. You'll come no more a-souling till this time next year. A soul, a soul, a soul king, please good Mrs. A-soul-king. And up with a pair of plumber and cherry, any good thing to make us all merry. One for Peter, two for Paul, three for him who made us all. The lanes are very dirty, my shoes are very thin. 
There's a wonderful variety of traditions related to feeding and welcoming the dead that have blossomed and changed and shifted across Europe in the last centuries. There's an older tradition in Lithuania and Eastern Europe of eating feasts at graveyards or explicitly inviting the beloved dead of your family or friends to join you for dinner in your home like you could set an empty place at the table for someone who you miss and say out loud at the beginning of the feast that they are welcome to join you. Eating feasts at graveyard has recently evolved into processing with candles and lanterns to graveyards on All Souls Day, November 2nd, and leaving them burning there, which makes for a really beautiful spectacle, which isn't deeply traditional, but has become so. And I think that it makes a lot of sense given the centrality of fire rituals at this time of year. In Poland, people will give to the poor in cemeteries food and perhaps money because they consider them representations of their own beloved dead. And making an offering to a living person does in fact make a difference materially in the world, but it's also beautiful to add that additional layer of symbolism and potency to the act. All of these gestures of multitudinous forms, it would be really hard to to list all of them. Those are just some examples. But all of these gestures of feeding and welcoming the dead at this time of year are really interesting beyond just thinking about how winter is the gateway to the season when plants die and when this sort of death half of the year reigns. Because we've just, just closed off, or we are currently in the process of closing off the harvest in October. And the harvest, when you are so close to the earth that you're literally spreading manure and watching things and animals decompose and then harvesting from that rich soil of decomposition, you would be really aware of the fact that the harvest is quite literally the bodies of the dead underground giving gifts to us. And so the idea of offering gifts in return to the dead is quite natural at this time of year. And it makes a lot of sense that at a time when the dead seem very present, we would want to return the gesture by offering them hospitality and gifts. There's a really potent sense of nostalgia, you may have noticed, that typifies this holiday. I know that we often feel a longing for a time when tradition was much more deeply embedded in our daily lives, but also we long for childhood when it was really easy to dress up in costumes and go door to door. And the magic of this season might have felt more alive to us before we fully understood the context of the symbolism and the mysteries behind it. But I actually feel like when we bring this information back in our lives in an intentional way, the mystery remains because it's actually objectively a part of how life works. And this is the moment of the year where things become extra mysterious. This is when we're entering into darkness. But this sense of nostalgia is also really closely related to the fact that this is a festival for the dead. There's a phrasing in Lithuania for the holiday, and I I think it's called love longing. I might be wrong about that right now. (laughs) But the fact that it's so common to do love-based divinations at this time or to 
reach out and, and try to find ways of communicating with the dead or receiving communications from them. And we're missing the richness of summer, but there's something very bittersweet about that. I mean, we all appreciate this moment of fall, the sunset of the year. It's very emotionally rich. It's almost like an opportunity to really step into a sense of longing and of loss. It's an extended period of mourning in a ritualized way that everybody undergoes together. And I think that that's really beautiful and powerful. And I also think it's why there are so many songs that relate to this time of year that are also love songs and are songs about people who are separated from us either by circumstance or often also by death. Like in this song that I'll share with you now, The Holland Handkerchief, which is sung here by Chris Foster. This song tells the story of a young woman who falls in love with a guy who is of a lower class than her, who has less money, and her father who's a man of high standing, takes issue with her choice and sends her to live 50 miles away where she can't contact or meet with her partner. One night, this lover comes to her window and invites her to ride on his horse with him. And they ride swifter than the wind. But after a while, her sweetheart says to her that his head is very sore. And so she offers to stop and wrap his head with her Holland handkerchief. She notices as she does this for him that his skin is rather startlingly cold. I don't know exactly what a Holland handkerchief is, so if you're somebody who has knowledge about domestic items like a handkerchief that may have been manufactured in Holland or was maybe embroidered in a Dutch style, let me know. I'd be curious to know what a Holland handkerchief is in this instance, but I imagine its importance is the fact that it's a distinctive kind or style, so it couldn't be mistaken later in the song when it may reappear. So after this interlude, they get back on the horse, and he drops her off at her father's gate. She knocks, and when he opens the door, surprised that she's there, she tells him that her lover had told her he sent for her. He goes pale, and he lets her know that in fact her lover has been dead for nine months now. So she goes to the graveyard, and longing to see him again, she digs him up, and she sees the same handkerchief as the one that she'd wrapped around his head there still under the soil, thus confirming she had in fact encountered him after death one last time. This is The Holland Handkerchief by Chris Foster. None of them could her favor gain Until one came of a low degree And above all others she fancied he 
But when her father he came to know that his lovely daughter loved this young man so, over fifty miles he sent her away, all to deprive her of her wedding day. As she lay in her bedroom, her young love came to her from out the gloom. He touched her hand, and to her he did say, "Arise, my darling, and come away." So it's with this young man she got on behind. And they rode swifter than any wind. They rode on for an hour or more until he says, "Oh, my darling, my head feels sore." So a Holland handkerchief she then drew out and. With it wrapped his head about, she kissed his lips, and to him she did say, "My dear, you are colder than any clay." Now, when they came to her father's gate, he said, "Get down, love. The hour is late. Get down, get down, love, and go to bed. And I will see that this gallant horse is groomed and fed." And when she rapped at her father's hall, who's there? Who's there? Her own father did call. It is I, dear father. Didn't you send for me by such a messenger, naming he? Oh no, dear daughter, that can never be. Your words are false, and you lie to me. For on yonder mountain, your young man died, and in yon green valley now his body lies. Then the truth it dawned on this maiden brave, and with her friends she exposed. The grave where lay her young man, oh nine months dead, with a Holland handkerchief tied around his head. 
So it is a woe to all parents, as I say still, who rob young lovers of their own will. For once their promises and vows they give, they can never recall them back whilst they live. Though the Catholic Church has saints' days on every day of the year, there aren't too many prominent ones in October that are related to seasonal lore. Michaelmas just passed at the end of September, and all saints and all souls are about to come at the end of October. But there's two pretty prominent ones that stood out to me as I was sorting through the calendar customs of the countries that I tend to look at. And they both happened to relate specifically to shoes. And this kind of puzzled me. And I started looking into it a little bit more because I've always been interested in the history of shoes because who isn't? And I have kind of big feet, so it's hard for me to find them. Historical shoes are beautiful and interesting in ways that some of the modern ones are maybe not so charming. And of course, I found that there is a great deal of folklore relating to shoes all over the world. Shoes are, in England, a really common protective charm, or at least we assume they're protective, that is found in the walls of older houses. And often it'll just be a single shoe, and often a child's shoe. Shoes literally protect your body from the elements, for one. So I think they have a natural affinity to a sense of protection. And they're also made of leather, which is a piece of a body of an animal. And there is a really strong tradition all over Europe, much, much farther in the past, of sacrificing animals or even human children in the foundations or the doorways of houses. And so this could be another way of continuing that tradition without having to enact any violence on anybody. Shoes also really magically hold the essence of a person. A shoe takes on the shape of your foot. It starts to smell like your foot, for better or worse. And there are several magical charms that people can do, or spells, you could say, where a person will put on another person's shoe in order to absorb some aspect of their experience or life energy, maybe in not such a sinister way as that sounds. For example, there is a tradition, I think this is also in England, but I wouldn't be surprised if you found it elsewhere. I think I've heard of it in Ireland too, of a young woman who would put on the shoe of a woman who had had several children already, a young woman who's just been married perhaps and wants to have children or is struggling to conceive, she would wear the shoe of this other person in order to take on that quality that she has. And I can really imagine how this would work because having worn a lot of secondhand shoes in my life, there is a sense of stepping into the beingness of another person. There's something energetically really potent about shoes that is hard to quantify. And I know that if you looked into ancient history, it would continue to have a rich 
harvest of shoe lore that you could find. I know that in the Bible, for example, in biblical literature, there's a lot of accounts of the wearing or removal of shoes having a lot of significance. So all of that said about shoes, I started thinking about shoes in the context of October specifically because I haven't noticed a focus on shoe lore anywhere else in the calendar myself. And of course, I don't know everything, but I thought it was kind of interesting that the two main figures who feature in October folklore have prominent shoe associations or, or boots. So first of all is St. Hedwig, who was a Duchess of Silesia in Poland. Her Saint's Day is on October 16th. And I've noted before in the Almanac episode that I shared, I think on the Patreon, that she is known as the saint who sweetens the cabbages because she's sort of like a Jack Frost figure where she appears mid-October when it is likely, depending on obviously, very much depending on your bioregion, but where I've lived in the North, it is very common that the first frost would fall in mid-October or at least by mid-October. And there's this wonderful thing that happens if you leave cabbages out in the field. Not all plants will do this, but a lot of brassica can survive a couple of frosts and will, in fact, become sweeter as a result. So she is said to sweeten or pour honey on the cabbage. But the story that she is most known for, aside from her connection to the plants and the agricultural cycle, which seems to me less a Christian and more of a later folkloric element, which may have been adopted from an earlier figure, a pagan figure, but hard to quantify that or hard to prove that. She was also known for walking barefoot, insisting on walking barefoot. She would walk to and from church without wearing shoes to and from anywhere all winter long as a way of showing solidarity with the poor. And then also, of course, in the Christian tradition, showing disdain or disinterest in the body. In many depictions of her, she'll be barefoot, and in her iconography, she'll be barefoot and holding a pair of fur-lined leather boots over her arm. And this comes from a story where her husband, one day, who is a moneyed fellow, he sends her some fur-lined boots and insists that she not be without them, so that she always has them with her. So taking him literally, she carries them under her arm when she walks barefoot in the winter after that. In memory of her, there's a tradition at the Cistercian Abbey where she eventually lived in Trebnitz to make a shoe sole-shaped pastry and distribute it to the poor. And these little pastries are called Hedwig Solen. I love the idea of making a foot-shaped treat or bread object and giving it to people at the beginning of winter as a protection or as a gift at a time when... <laughs> this is the whole reason I think these two saints are the most relevant, and I'll mention it now, is the fact that many people in Europe or anywhere in the summertime who have not a lot of money wouldn't be wearing shoes unless it was absolutely necessary because they couldn't afford them, including and especially children. And in the wintertime, when October comes, is when you would start to notice the frost and you'd notice the bite of the cold and you'd be pressed to find something to cover your feet with, whether you could afford leather shoes or not. It would be a time when the difference between rich and poor would be especially poignant, where people need to cover their feet in order to survive, and many of them could not. So I think the prevalence of these saint figures at this time of year is speaking to the fact that there's a dire need to cover your feet 
starting in October. And if you are poor, you probably don't have the means to do so, or you're going to need to receive charity of some kind, or perhaps supernatural assistance, which is why we have these saints. The second saint, which is actually two saints, and I don't know, this might be a unique thing in, in saint lore, which is kind of curious. These two are celebrated on October 25th. It's Saints Crispin and Crispinian, and they are the two shoemaker saints. They are the patron saints of cobblers and shoemakers, and they've always been a favorite of mine. They're twins. <laughs> it just occurred to me this week while I was preparing this episode, even though I've thought and spoken about them for years, Saints Crispin and Crispinian are twins because our feet are twins <laughs> and shoes come in pairs. It's very cute, actually. I'd never, ever considered that before. But there we go. Saints Crispin and Crispinian are celebrated on October 25th, historically. And they were especially celebrated in England. As far as I know, there may have been other places, and I wouldn't be surprised. In the 19th century, this is when these customs were dying out. I think they probably reached a peak in the Middle Ages, especially in the era of guilds, where different craft people would band together and hold events and host celebrations and raise funds to have parties for themselves and each other, etc. In the 19th century is when we have most of the records about these kinds of celebrations. So in some places in England, all the cobblers, for example, would have a holiday on October 25th. And there is a, a little song from a book from 1942 called The British Calendar Customs. It's a whole series that I draw on for these almanac episodes. There's an account of boys who used to sing on this day, the 25th of October, cursed be the cobbler that goes to bed sober. In Suffolk, cobblers and shoemakers would both parade through the town on horseback with someone dressed up as St. Crispin in a coat of mail, so a very medieval-looking knight fellow on one of their floats or on a horse. I should probably be clear that cobblers are people who repair shoes, and cordwainers or shoemakers are people who create shoes. They may be able to do each other's tasks at times, but they are two separate professions, historically. There's another little rhyme from Brighton that was recorded in 1822. The bellman of Brighton, who was named Jacob Washer, I love how specific news accounts are, so this one comes from the paper. On October 19th of 1822, the Brighton Herald reported that last year, the bellman of Brighton, Jacob Washer, rose early and recited this poem through the streets and lanes of town. If I ever St. Crispin's Day forget, oh, may my feet be never free from wet, but every dirty street and lane pass through without one bit of sole to either shoe. I think we should revive the Shoemaker Day on October 25th because there's so little thanks given to craftspeople these days and I think it can be a gorgeous way of appreciating how these objects come to be. And I know there aren't so many people handcrafting and hand-repairing shoes in our modern towns and cities, but I personally know that there are cobblers in every town and probably every village. And I bet they would really appreciate it if you popped by and gave them a shoe-shaped cookie on October 25th. I've noticed that cobblers do tend to be especially friendly because they meet idiosyncratic, maybe nostalgic types of people. Often, they have a lot of turnover of people coming through their shop, a lot of variety. A couple of years ago, 
maybe it was 2015, I didn't know what to do with my master's of medieval studies. And I thought for a while that I might become a cobbler. So I systematically went to every cobbler in the city that I was living in and a couple in some other cities and just interviewed them about their craft and asked them what their job is like. And I found them all to be incredibly open-minded and friendly. I don't think there is a cobbler in my town now, but I would encourage you to meet one. I can't imagine how thrilled they'd be that you know about St. Crispin. Next, I'm going to play a song by Barbara Dane, who is a folk singer who I hugely admire and who is 95 years old this year. I just learned this when I was looking up this song of hers. She happens to be on Twitter, and she is right now promoting her autobiography, which she wrote called This Bell Still Rings, My Life of Defiance and Song, which came out in September. She's especially well known for her song called I Hate the Capitalist System that I'm pretty sure she wrote in the 40s or 50s. That's how amazingly old school she is. This song attests to the emotional intensity of needing shoes in a world where they are in short supply or where you have not easy access to them because of your gender or your economic circumstances. This is Who is Gonna Shoe My Pretty Little Foot from 1967 by Barbara Dane. Oh, man, love. 
Another way of keeping warm in the long, cold winter that I haven't gone into yet is fire. Fire is absolutely central to these major holidays in late October and to the start of winter. This is the time when we come indoors for the first time from the outside because the outside is no longer warm enough to inhabit consistently. And it's when people start lighting fires indoors and gathering around them. This is when the storytelling season and the singing season of winter really start to take shape. The fire has been the center of the community and the home since humans have had this technology. There's a really fascinating and super old practice that happens both at this time of year in Gaelic countries and also at Beltane at the beginning of the summer on the eve of the 1st of May which is the renewal of the community fire. This is also a practice I've heard happens in Slavic countries historically as well. At this time, at Samhain, if we focus on Ireland and Scotland specifically, all of the fires in the village, everybody's house fire that may have been lit earlier in the month because we're not all going to wait for the bonfire at the end of the month to light fires in our houses, all of the house fires, all of the lanterns, all of the candles, all of the forges, all of the ovens, are extinguished. And one central bonfire is lit for the whole area, for the whole village. And this fire is not lit in the conventional way that you might have from another fire, because as we've heard, they've all been extinguished. It's not lit with a flint. I mean, these days it is. <laughs> but historically, the sacred fire that's lit at this time of year from pagan times is called need fire. And this is fire that is made from the friction of just wood on wood. And there are these really interesting contraptions that are built that multiple people can operate that look a bit like a gate with a big round post in the center that gets manipulated and spun by multiple people in order to create friction, in order to create a spark to start a fire from absolute scratch. And then once this bonfire is lit and is burning the bones that a bonfire includes, all of the fires of the community can be relit from this fire. And this is a renewal of so many aspects of community that are connected with fire. It's a renewal of the life force of the community in collaboration with the ancestors that are being venerated, in collaboration with the spirits that are present at this time of year. It's a renewal of warmth, of closeness, of comfort. It's a protection in that it cleanses any sort of stale atmosphere or habits symbolically from the community and refreshes them and renews them and re-centralizes them. It glues everyone back together and reminds them of this common purpose and this common life force that they share because we all do share 
in these finite resources, we also share in this infinite sense of spiritual illumination. And these fires are also historically, especially the Samhain fires, were also intended to protect through cleansing. As I mentioned, the fires of Samhain were built, and Beltane as well, in order to, according to Cormac's glossary, which is a, an early Irish text, these fires were lit and often in pairs, and the cows that were coming down from pasture in the fall would be driven between the fires in order to cleanse them with the smoke and the heat, which a practice which in Scotland is called saining and can be done with specific herbs, etc. I'm not specialized in that, but smoke cleansing specifically is known as saining in Scotland. And at Beltane, the cows again will be protected and, and cleansed or purified in this way before they go out to pasture and spend their time out in the hills and the fields. The fires are there to scare away malevolent forces at the same time as they welcome in benevolent forces and gather the people together in unity in a way that I'm sure you can imagine from ever having visited a fire or a bonfire in your community as well. At this point, at the beginning of the year, restarting all of the fires in a community also has this primordial sense of restarting life itself. As I'd mentioned at the beginning, that the, when the year begins, we are in collaboration with divinity, with the other worldly forces and the dead. We are in a way restarting life because the year is a cycle. It's a circle and the sun itself dies and is reborn. And every month the moon dies and is reborn. And we get to participate in that in a really tangible way when we extinguish the fire that is separating us, that is diffused over time. And we rekindle it in a unified and focused and really encouraging way. There's one more fire practice that I think is really resonant for us these days because it's something that we still do. And that is the practice of carving and lighting a jack-o'-lantern. And this practice, I understand, originated in Ireland with the carving of turnips into the shape of human heads or other ghastly creatures. It's really beautiful when we think a little deeper. I mean, even when you're looking at a jack-o'-lantern, it just has this hypnotic, really magical quality to it that I never cease to appreciate. But when we think about how that symbolism works, we can get even deeper and even richer with this particular ritual practice, this symbolic act of lighting a pumpkin or a turnip. What we're doing is we're taking this fire of the living community, which in some cases historically would have been drawn from this central need fire, and we're combining it with a symbol of the dead, a literal decapitated human head, and also the fruit of the earth where the dead are laying in rest and fertilizing the food that we now eat. It not only is a human head, but it's also a reanimated one. And there's actually a really interesting parallel here. There's a strange cult of the head. Well, maybe not strange if you're interested in these things. There's a cult of the head in Celtic tradition that has to do with wells. It has to do with the Holy Grail. There's material in the Mabinogion about a fraternity called the Assembly of the Wondrous Head, which is also a decapitated human head that talks. And it also reminds me of Mimir, which is the decapitated magical head that lives in Mimisbrunner, the 
Mimir's well at the foot of Yggdrasil. This is the well of human wisdom. And Mimir, this figure who Odin has as a counselor, (laughs) this head, his name is also tied up with the root of the word memory in modern English. So the head, of course, is the seat of wisdom. And so we are doing this interesting pulling back into history in so many different ways in this super potent, resonant image of the shining, decapitated, wise, undead head that we are displaying and perhaps even venerating or worshipping at this time. So with all that in mind, you could imagine that lighting a candle inside a pumpkin or a turnip with a face is like igniting the living memory of your ancestral knowledge, that intangible library of human wisdom that never really dies, that can always be reignited inside of us and in our interactions with other humans through shared inspiration, you might say. So any rituals you might decide to do with fire or smoke at this time of year would feel especially potent given all these precedents for them. And though bonfires were important actually at all the major festivals in Europe, typically, this one, along with Beltane or Valpurgis in Germanic areas, is definitely one of the most important festivals featuring fire, partly because it's the beginning of the onset of darkness. In the Catholic era, these bonfires of Halloween were interpreted as beacons to light the way for souls who wanted to find their path out of purgatory, which is the stopping point between heaven and hell for people who don't quite fit in either one. But they need this human help from their community to light the way, which I think is really beautiful and generous (laughs) and a way for people to work around the sort of unkindness of this idea of fixed afterlife locations that can be punishing and will leave you feeling this longing and unresolvedness around your beloved dead. I also really liked, if you follow these things, there's a fantasy series called The Wheel of Time, which is, I think, maybe one of the biggest fantasy novel sets ever. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's what it is, but it's one of the most famous either way. And it was recently made into a television series And they had a really cool interpretation. The author had a really cool interpretation for the relevance of the the Beltane fires, which are the the counterpoint to these Samhain fires. It was like a a repaganizing of the Christian interpretation, or even like an Easternization of it or something. And their belief in this fictional community is that by lighting the Beltane fire, they are lighting the way for their beloved dead to reincarnate and revisit their community as new beings. I thought that was a really lovely poetic way to spin that history. As far as what you can do in your modern life to honor these traditions, though I doubt there will be any lack of opportunity to have Halloween celebrations of many kinds, here are some suggestions from me based on this folklore that felt emotionally relevant and potent for how I feel about this holiday. You could make an offering to the dead or to any gods or spirits that you identify with, perhaps the Dísir or your relatives who you miss, or even someone who is far away. (laughs) You can make an offering to them out of some part of the harvest. You can make a cake, you know, a soul cake, or you can make a shoe-shaped cake, or you can Even take the fruits of the harvest like apples or applesauce and give them to the people who live near 
you know, the tree that you harvested from if that's if it's not in your own yard, just finding a way to take some part of the harvest and share it around again and give it life in a way that maybe you haven't done before. You can also make a corn dolly, which is something that belongs a little bit more to September. But since we're in this wrapping up the harvest season moment still at the beginning of October, you could take some corn sheaves. Is that what they're called? (laughs) That you can get at the grocery store if you don't have access to those kinds of things or some grasses that are edible. Finding some way to build a human figure out of any of the harvest that you have access to wherever you live, whatever it is, making a human figure and either offering it to someone or bringing it indoors to spend the winter with you. This is a traditional practice as well. You could bless something with smoke or with fire that you're bringing indoors for the winter, perhaps a pet or yourself or some way of like blessing your doorstep to keep the you know, malevolent spirits or or things that you want to keep out outside of your house. You could do a protective spell for yourself or others using fire or smoke, just invoking that intention when you do have a candle or have some incense, however you like to create smoke or fire for yourself. You could learn a song and sing it at the same time when that's relevant to the practice or the season. Maybe the souling song that you heard in this episode, you could sing it around a fire. You could teach it to your friends. And you can do that at any time. I feel like singing is a way to really lock into the body, the experience of what the ritual aspects of any time of the year are. And you can do it imperfectly. Just sing. (laughs) Sing not as a performance, sing as an experience. And you will eventually find that you might feel a lot more comfortable doing it if you're someone who's a little nervous about being heard. But most of all, I think one of the things that I'd like you to take away from this time of year is a sense of generosity, the generosity of nature, the generosity between beings, the generosity between worlds and dimensions that is at play right here. We're seeing a lot of back and forth between worlds, between the dead and the living, between the gods and the humans, and between humans and other humans, right? And it's very easy to forget about the humans and other humans part of that equation at this time of year. And I would suggest that it's a spectrum, right? And there's a whole bunch of degrees between you and, say, the ancestral dead or the fairies, right? And in the closer spheres, in some ways, it can be even harder for us to connect with those at this time of year, partly because our communities are a little atomized. But I am really curious what happens like when you give to another human, when you go out of your comfort zone and physically interact with someone and give them something or do them a favor, even if it's just giving them your place in line at the grocery store or picking up a hitchhiker or making food for someone who's sick or who just had a baby. And then really notice how that feels in your body, that good feeling, not the good feeling like I'm a good person or I feel obligated to do this, but like notice that really organic sort of bubbling up of fellow feeling (laughs) that you might have When you do that, not when you just think about it, but when you actually do it and you see somebody react or respond, and it's not even so much about how they respond. And then you could take that feeling into any ritual that you do, whether it's trick or treating, whether it's carving a jack o' lantern. Take that feeling and spread that feeling like a bridge out to those outer edges of existence. 
those beings that are much further remote. And I think that you'll find that your rituals are much more potent as a result. Just like lock in that feeling of like, this is nice. I feel connected to other humans. And then spread that around to the even more abstract kinds of beings that we might encounter at this time even while we hold loving boundaries around it, right? We don't want like any old spirits and ghosts and beings to have access to our psyche and in our inner sanctum, our home, right? Or our body. But it is easier to hold boundaries for those who you also care for, right? So when you have that fellow feeling that I think Halloween is all about, this empathy that extends beyond just the human sphere, when you have that fellow feeling you're able to set those boundaries in a much cleaner and more productive, mature way and powerful. And I want to remind you that these Halloween bonfires specifically, the ones that I'm using as a metaphor for rekindling our sense of community and support and mutual inspiration, I want to remind you that those are not lit by a single person. You know, like in your life, you may decide to rekindle something that has become diffused or lost over time. You might want to end something and really just start afresh with something new. That might be like a symbolic way that you invoke this. But I also just want you to think about how the context of these original bonfires are really very much about community care and sharing. So everybody in the surrounding area was supposed to put out their fires, right? And relight them from that common bonfire. Nobody lit their own bonfire unless they were kind of like a hermit. And if they did, they were going to a lot of unnecessary effort because plenty of young men were very excited about the opportunity to build a fire for everybody else from absolute scratch. So the lesson in that, I think, is to ask yourself, is there a well of community care or company that you're forgetting to share in or draw on at this time because either you've decided you don't deserve it or you're in the habit because of COVID or you think there's not enough to go around or maybe you think you're not welcome? And to just revisit that idea and reconsider, like, do I maybe want to join a club? Is is there some sort of group of people who would even benefit from me joining in their conversation about, say, like a book or a hobby? Do I want to start a singing group, (laughs) which is what I'm doing right now? Or do I even just want to invite some people to a bonfire and while they're there, talk about our creative plans for the winter? Because fire is not a limited resource. As much as there are those in the wintertime, this is the one that we all can share. And all that happens when we share it is that it grows. It gets bigger and it spreads further and we're all benefiting from it. So we're coming to the end of the episode. I want to remind you to please, if you enjoyed any of the songs in this episode, go to the show notes, find the artist's homepages and buy the music directly from them. And then, of course, also you can stream it on any platforms that it appears. And please check the show notes if you're somebody who's interested in being involved as one of the core team members of the Pagan Monastery Project. I am like so excited to get folks in there. There is an application process. So if you are interested, get on it as soon as possible. I'm only going to leave it up for about a week and then we'll regroup and invite the larger population who's interested at a later date. Thank you so much for listening to this Fair Folk podcast episode. It's wonderful to be back. And it would be very helpful to me if you shared the podcast with at least one person who you think would enjoy it. And if you do share it on social media and you have the time, you could say something about what you liked about it specifically or like what's in it, (laughs) why you like it, because otherwise, you know, people might just scroll past and it really helps people to understand 
what they might get out of listening to it, why you like it, so it doesn't waste your time. You get to really maximize your communication there. Thank you very much to Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March provides the opening theme to Fur Folk. I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned, but Sylvia Woods, her name means forest woods, and then her song is also called Forest March. So it's a very forest-themed amalgamation there that I appreciate a great deal. Please also be sure to check out the playlist that I made for October based on the Folklore of the Month. I've linked that in the show notes. It's by special request from some longstanding Fair Folk listeners. And this month, I really felt inspired to oblige. So please enjoy. There is a song I want to share at the end of this episode that I just found yesterday. And I feel like it is a bit of a protective charm for this month when frost appears and tends to be, in a lot of different folklore traditions, personified. I really like the personification of natural features like frost or weather because they show this mutual concern, this fellow feeling with things that are really easy to dismiss as just like, quote unquote, nature, just nature, which they never really are. So this is a song about Jack Frost and his tendency to try to get into our houses and our lives. It's a chant, almost, a chant of protection to create a barrier around your house. I think this would be an amazing song to learn and sing and a ritual around the start of winter, whether that's on winter nights, full moon on October 9th, or on October 31st, or any time in between. This is a carol written by Barry Temple and performed by the Wilderness Yet. It's called Old Jackie Frost. And this album has been blowing my mind since I found it. I know that I'm going to be listening to it all winter long. Highly recommend that you check out The Wilderness Yet. Stay warm this month, folks. Gather together with people you like, if you can, and remember to share and receive what's shared with you. Take good care, and I'll talk to you soon. Old Jackie Frost is knocking at the door. Don't let him in no way, sir. Old Jackie Frost been here before. Don't let him in no way, sir. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, he'll come knocking all around your door. Give him a chance of the in for sure, don't let him in no way, sir. Summer's lost and the winter's come, don't let him in no way, sir. Days are short and the nights are long, don't let him in no way, sir. Hear him knocking, don't complain, see his scar on the window pane. Comes the winter, comes the man, don't let him in no way, sir. See the sheep in the winter snow, don't let him in no way, sir. Oh, forlorn, nowhere to go, don't let him in no way, sir. Cut so thick, the sun don't shine, oh, how I wish that cup were mine. Too glad the heart's so warm and fine, don't let him in no way, sir. Old Jackie Frost is knocking at the door, don't let him in no way, sir. Old Jackie Frost been here before, don't let him in no way, sir. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, he'll come knocking all around your door. Give him a chance, he'll be in for sure, don't let him in no way, sir. See his breath freezing the air, don't let him in no way, sir. Old and cold are everywhere, don't let him in no way, sir. 
Chucky Frost, he'll be far away. Don't let him in, no way, sir. Spring will come and rise again. Don't let him in, no way, sir. Jack in the Green will bring his friends. Don't let him in, no way, sir. Fight the fight, defy the foe. Old Chucky Frost, he will have to go. He'll be back sooner than you know. Don't let him in, no way, sir. Old Jackie Frost is knocking at the door. Don't let him in, no way, sir. Old Jackie Frost been here before. Don't let him in, no way, sir.